Welcome to Conservation Unfiltered, presented by Conserve the Wild, your destination for an unfiltered look at conservation. Now let's get wild. If your if your overarching goal is conservation, right, you sometimes have to do those really messy things because humans have messed it up. Uh, you know, the other option is to let the species go extinct. Happy Friday or happy whatever day of the week it is that you are listening to this episode of the Conservation Unfiltered podcast presented by Conserve the Wild. This is episode number 71, International Conservation with Jeremy Hance. Now, we've covered a lot of conservation topics that are based in North America, and that makes sense because, well, quite honestly, that's where I live. But today we're going to talk about something a little bit different. In today's episode, I'm going to be talking with an environmental journalist, and his name is, as you heard, Jeremy Hance. Now, Jeremy is passionate about wildlife conservation, climate change, forests, animal behavior, indigenous people, and all kinds of other topics. Uh, he's had his works appear in Manga Bay, The Guardian, HuffPost, uh, Yale E360, Sydney Morning Herald, and a whole host of others. And I basically just talked to Jeremy to get an idea of what the international conservation community is facing. So to find out what some of the big challenges uh, facing conservation on that international level. Uh, and then we also get into one of one of the topics of one of his uh, recent blog posts, why less charismatic animals are of a greater concern. And then we talk a little bit about what it's like traveling to cover these stories. He's oftentimes going to um, very undeveloped areas uh, of these international countries. Um, so we talk about that. And the reason why, well, I'll let him explain in detail, but he has a new book uh, talking about uh, how he deals with it, along with uh, a couple personal issues that he has that, that he's going to cover. Uh, so I'm going to let him get into that. We talk about that a little bit at the end. Uh, it's an interesting topic, this idea of international conservation, and especially that sort of idea of less charismatic animals being of greater concern. So let's get right into it and uh, see what Jeremy has to uh, sort of share with us about international conservation. Hey everybody, welcome back. As you heard in the introduction, uh, I have a pretty special guest, uh, international traveler today, Jeremy Hans. Uh, Jeremy, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Hey, thanks for joining me. Um, you know, I tried to uh, fancy myself as a creative person in the conservation space with this podcast. Um, every once in a while, I fancy myself a writer by doing some blog posts on our website. But you are like an actual like paid writer. Like you get paid to do this and and to to write about conservation. Um, so really, thank you for coming on. Uh, this is uh, I can't wait to. Uh, share with everyone else some of the things we've already talked about uh, prior to recording. For sure, yeah, I'm excited to do this. So, uh, as I sort of alluded to in the in that introduction, we're going to be talking a lot about sort of in, international conservation, which is a topic we haven't covered on this podcast very much, um, just because uh, I'll be honest, I'm not overly familiar with international conservation. Um, I feel like I'm pretty familiar with the North American model of conservation. Um, uh, I try to stay up to date with uh, conservation issues going on uh, within North America and, and especially the United States and then even more especially in Pennsylvania because you know that's what's hitting close to home to me. Yeah. But obviously conservation itself really doesn't know borders, right? No. Uh, you know, the wildlife, they have no recognition of this man-made line that we've put on a map. <laughs> Um, so can you, can you just, uh, tell me one, what, why you got interested in conservation? Like what, 
Let's start sure. with that. What started you down this path of, hey, I'm interested in this and I like writing, so I'm going to write about this? Yeah, well, it, it's sort of, a, it was two different paths. Um, I've always been obsessed with animals and really interested in, in wildlife and nature since I was very little. It's like one of the first things my parents would say that I was really interested in. But it was always, I, mean, I think I think you and I are kind of polar opposites in the sense that like, I, I grew up in the US, I live in the US, I love like going to the national parks, I love the wildlife here, but I'm so much more familiar now with like international conservation issues. I mean, I, I, I have covered US issues before, but it's, it's much rarer. I really focus on much more uh, international and especially the tropics. And so as a kid, I really loved, you know, the more exotic the wildlife, the better, the stranger, the weirder was always exciting to me. Um, and then I just, as I got older, I got really into writing and was, and I did like an English degree and was sort of a, uh, I've always been a book nerd. And so at, at some point in my twenties, I, I did a trip to Peru um, to the Amazon rainforest for the first time, which really reawakened a lot of my sort of uh, love of conservation and concern about our, our current environmental issues. Um, and then kind of mirrored those two, uh, luckily was able to bring those two things together, my writing and my um, passion for conservation and kind of create this career out of it. And I just kind of hit uh, the right place in the right time um, and was able to do that and, and have been able to make a career out of writing about, like I said, mostly international issues um, around the world. That's cool. And, and, you know, while we might be sort of opposites with, you know, your interest in this sort of the weirder, the better type thing, um, you know, it, I'm glad that there's people like you that have interest in that, that bring it back to home here so that we can understand what's going on in a broader sense, um, mm -hmm. what's going on in the world. Uh, you know, it, it's funny that you bring that up because, you know, I mean, our childhood seemed pretty similar. Um, yeah. I, I spent a lot of time in the outdoors. I was fortunate enough to have um, some family property that I've talked about many times on this podcast where I, I mean, it was every weekend we were, we were at, at camp. Um, and, you know, seeing the wildlife that I saw there, it, for me, um, it, it, the weirdness of animals doesn't attract me. It's the um, wanting it, it. I feel like I have a pretty inquisitive personality. Like, so whenever right. I see uh, a white-tailed deer do so, why did they do that? Why? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's really led me down a rabbit hole of really trying to figure out like the, the wildlife that I interact with, you know, on a at least semi-daily basis. Why do they do the things they do? Yeah. Um, and I didn't, per, while I didn't pursue a career answering those questions, um, I still use, I mean, that, that's a big time hobby. That's most of my free time is trying to answer those questions. So as the, uh, what you are now going to be known as the uh, resident international conservationist expert, <laughs> uh, because you're the first one we have, you sure. get that title. Um what what are some of the some of the issues that that we're facing? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's difficult because you know every country is facing somewhat different issues. Every region is facing different issues. You know, governments approach issues differently, so it's it's hard to sort of sum up. But in thinking about this question, I'd say if we're looking at you know there's if we're looking at land right uh, land based conservation versus marine, which is a totally different beast, which we could definitely get into, but. I would say the three major sort of international issues uh, that are kind of spread increasingly around the globe is of course climate change um, because that is a global thing. <laughs> and that is something that, that uh, you know, uh, nations obviously and wildlife are adapting to or trying to. Um, but then also I would say the uh, global wildlife trade which is largely feeding demand in um, East Asia um, but is increasingly being sourced from places like as we know Africa um, but also South America is increasingly getting hit too. Um, as wildlife sort of vanishes from Southeast Asia and East Asia, the wildlife trade is like moving uh, into new areas. And then I would say the third one is, is deforestation uh, or, or habitat destruction if you wanna get sort of you know, even larger. But um, our loss of uh, rainforest, tropical forests and you know, deciduous forests around the world. You know, and that's, it's interesting because that's not such an issue in the, in the US anymore. Um, obviously, we, we kind of started out by cutting down all of our forests, and now we're at a process historically where some of them are coming back, where we've gotten to a process where we're, where we're um, you know, we have a lot of protected forests, and some of them are, I mean, I live in Minnesota, where, you know, I can go to, to the north, uh, to like the Boundary Waters area, and it's 
forest that is, you know, was once cut and is now back. Um, but around a lot of the world, the issue is that they are in the stage where they are just cutting and burning, as we saw uh, in the Amazon recently. Um, but it, this is a, 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 a pattern that occurs over all over the world, um, especially in, in tropical countries where uh, they cut down the forest and then they burn it. Um, and it creates, you know, awful smog, but it also destroys habitat, releases carbon dioxide, of course, um, and it, it, it affects, uh, uh, and then increases, you know, the ability uh, or the difficulty for these animals to be able to survive. And, you know, we're, we're losing a lot of beautiful places and, and risking a lot of species through that. So I would say that those are the kind of the three big ones is climate change, wildlife trade, and deforestation. Now, of course, if you look at marine areas, we can start to get into other things. Um, but those uh, land-based, that's probably the, the three most largest ones that are just kind of impacting the world, again, in different ways in different countries, but a lot of countries are feeling that pressure. So, I mean, we could talk for hours about each one of those yeah, individually, <laughs> so it's going to be hard to really dive in uh, to, to those topics. But, um, you know, when it comes to the wildlife trade, I mean, it, you know, I because I'm, I feel like I'm familiar with North America, with, with yeah. the United States, like we had a wildlife trade. Um, yeah. You know, we, we were, uh, as humans, we were killing animals for market hunting. Um, yeah. And we've been able to put a stop to that. Well, what, what is it about Southeast Asia that, I mean, first, I guess the question is, is this wildlife trade legal? Um, sure. And then on top of that, like, why is it still persistent in other cultures? Like, what's the yeah. purpose for it? Um, so first of all, I would say that, uh, you know, largely it's illegal. Um, you know, uh, different countries in East Asia are going to have different laws and there's, you know, there, it depends obviously on, on certain things, but for the most part, it's illegal. Um, and what is driving it is, is it's just, it's, it's largely cultural. Um, you know, uh, places like China, Vietnam, uh, they have a thousands of year old tradition of, of, basically eating lots of different species, which when you look at the US, we did too. You know, we used to, turtle soup used to be like one of the most popular things in the US, right? We don't do that and we don't eat that anymore. And it's just, it's largely a cultural thing that there, there's demand for all these species. And then you get into Chinese traditional medicine, which again, goes back thousands of years and has a use for kind of all these different animal body parts. Um, and so that's where you get into like tiger blood, tiger bone, you know, bear bile, um, some of the stuff that to all of us looks a little, you know, I think a lot of Westerners see that and they're like, whoa, that's really weird or gross. But again, this is a, this is a cultural heritage that's going back thousands of years. So what's really happened is as you get, you know, as you get more, and this is a very kind of uh, trite way of saying it, but like as you get more people and you get more demand for these things and there's fewer wildlife and forests are being cut down, you know, areas are being ravaged and they're just hunting more eventually these species become endangered, right? Like that's kind of what the process is. For a long time, this, this traditional medicine and, and eating these animals may not have impacted at least certain species as hard. And we probably, I mean, we probably definitely lost some species, but you know, a lot of these animals were able to withstand it because they had pockets that they could, refuges that they could be in, you know, that they wouldn't get hunted. But now the forests in, in East Asia are so empty, have been so just, like it's it's if you can imagine just an army going through and destroying everything um you have what's called empty forest syndrome where like you can walk in a forest in southeast Asia and you can't find anything larger than a few insects right because even the, the small mammals and the birds are all gone and again it sounds i think strange to a western perspective but you know we had the passenger pigeon our, our ancestors even just are just a few generations back ate tons of songbirds you know europe they eat songbirds um, you know, we, we used to eat a lot of different things and, and now we're kind of more on this, you know, uh, farming, uh, very via industry and intensive. Um, but this is still happening in East Asia. The culture just hasn't changed. There is a massive drive to have it change. Um, and that's having some success, but in the meantime, it's really just, it's like a triage of trying to save species and places where you can. Um, and you know, because a lot of this is illegal, the money is ridiculous. <laughs> you know, um, people are dying over this. Uh, people are spending millions and millions of dollars. And so a lot of this is black market stuff. And it actually, a lot of it's connected to other black market structures like drug trade, prostitution, human trafficking. Like it's, it's all kind of intertwined in that region. And 
as they have run out of species and animals there, they have, you know, then gone to, oh, well, we've killed most of our rhinos in East Asia. Let's go get rhino horn in Africa, right? Or we've wiped out a lot of our tigers. Well, what if we got jaguar bone and blood? You know, so it's, it's, it's moved in the last, you know, uh, 50, 60, 100 years to other places as it sort of continues to look for demand to fill the, the, the market. Well, and um, you know, with the source of those animals moving to different countries, that just complicates it even further in my mind, because, you know, even if, you know, a Southeast Asian country would ban the imports and, and ban that part, I mean, you still need those countries where they're killing those animals to also enforce it. And, you know, when you yeah. just get more players involved, it just makes it more and more complicated to make sure that, you know, the, the rules are upheld. Yeah. It's very complicated because yeah, you're involving, uh, you know, transit smuggling then all of a sudden, and you're, you're having countries that are facing this that hadn't faced it in the past. So this is a new threat. And often we're talking about, in some cases, poorer nations that don't have a lot of resources for conservation to begin with. And so this is a whole new thing that they're, you know, being asked to sort of try and manage. Um, and there's a lot of great nonprofits that, you know, that are trying to do good work on this, but it, it is it is a constantly uphill battle. And I mean, I think, you know, more and more conservationists that work on this, I think, see the, you know, the only way to sort of end this or to, to turn it around is to change the behavior. Right. Um, and, and one of the problems is even as some of this stuff has been scientifically, like scientifically, you know, rhino horn doesn't really do any good for you. It's not going to, you know, there's all these myths about it, but it, it's just like eating your fingernails. Um, but what, what it, it starts to become like a prestige thing, like in certain countries, like, you know, if you're, if, if you can give your guest a certain, you know, uh, if you can show them that you have rhino horn, like that makes you even more wealthy and amazing. And so as some of these countries become richer, like China and stuff, it's become almost this like, prestige. And it's, I should be clear that it's not like a majority of people in these areas are doing this. They couldn't afford it. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a smaller minority, but the market is large enough that it's just on when you have just a few thousand tigers left, you know, or same with rhinos or pangolins is a huge one right now. Um, you know, any of these species, turtles, all sorts of animals um, are being sort of vacuumed up by this uh, trade. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I, well, it, when you started talking about, you know, trying to change behavior and, you know, scientifically proven things. Um, <clears throat> now, it, it started stirring something in my head that that was lost as soon as you said prestige, because this isn't it. But like my grandparents um, still sleep with a bar of soap tucked underneath their, their fitted sheet, uh, because that helps cramps, leg cramps, right? Mm, um, yeah. I, yeah, I'm not so sure about that, but you know, <laughs> exactly right. Since it's not hurting anybody, like go ahead and do it. Uh, obviously, yeah. this is on a whole, you know, whole different scale. Um, yes. Now, as far as like the the land use and and deforestation and things like that, um, you know, it it seems to me from afar, uh, the little bit that that I've looked into it, it seems to me that a lot of this is happening in some more developing countries mm -hmm. as opposed to developed countries, uh, where they have a greater percentage of people that are living in poverty. Um, so, you know, you it's sort of some questions in my mind of, sure. you know, I'm sure you have to try to figure out how to balance conservation benefit, but also benefit for the people, right? Um, yeah. you, you mentioned you live in Minnesota, but you know, not far from the boundary waters. We're, we're running into that now. I mean, the boundary waters themselves are protected, but yeah. you know, we have a mine that they yes. want to put to the North and that's, you know, how close is too close and you know, all yep. this, this battle, right? Because, you know, there's gray areas in, in conservation, like we talked about, uh, you know, before uh, off air, where, you know, you can't just shut down everything, right, because yeah. people need to make a living. Um, yeah. You know, so, I mean, what all, how are it's these just, developing nations like trying to balance, make that balancing act? Yeah, it, it's really hard. Um, and, you know, and, and I think I remember like in the 80s and 90s when, when this was a when the Amazon was also an issue and, and other deforestation, you know, a lot of a lot of the, the deforestation at that time was poverty driven. Right. It was it was people going into the forest, cutting it down and, and growing plots for themselves. And because the rainforest soil is the way that it is, if you don't know what you're doing, 
you exhaust the nutrients within a few years and then you have to cut down more. And that was kind of a, and that's not to say that that is not still happening because it is still happening in many countries. But a lot of what's changed in the last couple of decades is what this large scale corporations now, um, if you look at the Amazon, uh, the, the soy and beef industry, or if you look at say Indonesia and Malaysia and areas in Southeast Asia, it's often like palm oil, um, are just going in and clear cutting uh, or burning or, or allowing uh, sort of settlers to go in first and then they come in after, right? And sort of take over that land. And so there is a, a somewhat of a switch in the way the market is working in that like a lot of this is, is actually corporations that are doing it um, via various actors. Um, and in some cases, not in all cases, but in some cases, the local people, whether, um, especially when we're talking about indigenous people are often against, you know, the deforestation, like they want their forest because this is the way that they've lived for thousands of years and have been desperately trying to keep their forests. Um, and, you know, it's sort of the, the larger governments and the corporations that are doing a lot of the destruction. Now that's not to say, again, that's not to say in every case, different countries have still, I mean, poverty induced deforestation is still a major issue um, and is still driving a, a good chunk of it, but it is increasingly sort of a more uh, global uh, market demand, right? Demand for cheap beef, demand for soy, demand for palm oil. Um, and, you know, nations are, you know, these developing nations, um, you know, places like Brazil, Indonesia and stuff are, their governments are basically trying to get as much corporate, right? Corporate uh, and, and government and development as possible, like development for any, you know, uh, to any, for, at any cost um, to get more money into their coffers and to, you know, build what they see as what they, their country should be. But in doing so are losing a lot of the, you know, the natural splendor and, and um, beauty and wildlife, which, you know, I mean, I think you can argue that that's an okay trade off. It's certainly one that we all made in our past without really, I mean, we didn't have the environmental ec ecological knowledge, I think, when our forebears went and, you know, just ravaged through the prairies and cut down a lot of forests and such. But I, I think when you start adding in climate change, when you start adding in mass extinction, and when you start adding in all these unknowns, it's a it's and when you start adding in you know the cost to local people water fresh water availability all these things right uh the pollution that happens when you're when you burn a peat forest um you know it it, it the 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 scales become more difficult to just say well we have to do this because we're humans and we have to provide jobs for everybody it, it's really it's really difficult um but it is it is a gray area you know it's not it's not as simple as either side makes it out to be ever and that's one of the things you sort of, you know, that I, you know, I don't want to say enjoy because it's not like, but like one of the things I find interesting about journalism is the more you, the digger, you, the more you dig, the more complex things are, right? The more contextual, the more gray area you discover. And the more that it's not so much about right and wrong, it's really about, well, how do we manage things? What, what do we save? What don't we save? Uh, how do we deal with our climate crisis? How do we deal with our mass extinction crisis? Like, how can we do that? But also, you know, give pull people out of poverty, you know, uh, and that's kind of, I think, where this, a lot of this tension is, um, and there's no easy answer, but I, I also feel like a lot of what these countries are doing is, you know, what's happening in Brazil right now is a horrible catastrophe, you know, that I don't feel like that is the answer, certainly. Um, yeah, yeah I, I feel like the, the word that you're skirting around this entire time with it, and by speaking in so much detail is basically sustainability, Right. Yeah. Like it, you know, I'll be the first to say it's okay to cut down trees yeah. um, if we do it sustainably, you know, yeah. um, so that, you know, we can have regrowth or, um, you know, cutting down trees in one area, but leaving trees in another area. Like it, it's okay to do that. It's okay to have a, a, a mine for rare earth minerals, yeah. but okay, let's then conserve, you know, the same amount of acreage somewhere else you yeah. know, that is sensitive and don't mine in a sensitive area. You know, it, yeah. that's sustainability is, is, I mean, it's a buzzword when it comes to, to this kind of discussion, but let's be honest. I mean, it, it's pretty much the way to go. You know, if we yeah. can do everything in a sustainability mindset for long-term success instead of short-term profits, you know, we're, we're going to be better off as a, as a human populace. No, I, I totally agree. And I think that that is, I think the reason that I skirt around that one, and I think you're spot on that that is like sustainability at its core at the philosophy that you just described is like the mindset that I really think world leaders need to be taking on. Not not just uh, abroad, but obviously at home here in the US as well. Um, 
the the reason I think I skirt around that word is because yeah, it's just become so abused. You know, corporations talk about sustainability all the time, and it's complete BS, right? They don't mean it. Um, our leaders will talk about sustainability, but they really don't. You know, they don't. They a don't maybe don't know what the word is or or what it really means. And so I think that's one reason why I I, I don't want people to think that I'm just you know that we're just sort of talking about that in a trite way. But I think I like that you were able to define it in such a good way that like yeah, sustainability basically means that you can live off that you know, piece of land that or our planet, as if you want to look at it as a whole, indefinitely, right? And you can utilize resources, you know, mining, uh, food, all those things we need, right? Uh, it, it's a question of how do we do that? And how do we manage that? And, you know, what size populations, you know, are, are, are going to work? And, and what do we need to do the, for efficiency sakes? And, you know, uh, and, and that's really where where I think the rubber meets the road. And, and for a lot of developing countries though, you know, understandably so, you know, they're so focused on development. They're so focused on any way to pull people out of poverty, even if what they're doing isn't gonna really pull many people out of poverty, it's just gonna make a few, you know, Malaysian bankers richer, like, um, or, or same thing, you know, in Brazil, you know, if it's just gonna make Wall Street a little richer, like, and, you know, so they do these things, they, they approve these projects that are not gonna really help many people, but they do it, I think, at least some of them maybe with, with the idea of, well, this is going to help, you know, this is going to help our country move forward and become wealthier and, you know, it's going to help in the long run. But that's where, you know, it, a lot of times there's a lot of uh, cost to those projects that is often not looked at. Um, and even when it is looked at is sort of shot away or corruption comes in, you know. Um, so it's a really hard dilemma and we're getting <laughs> really to the core of kind of where these conversations are happening and, and, and how it's kind of going, I, I, at least from my perspective, I think a lot of it is uh, poor decision-making and not thinking about long-term, um, how are we gonna you know, hand our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren, a world that is livable. Um, yes, uh, wealthy to a certain extent, yes, you know, um, people having what they need, but is also like literally air that's breathable, water that's drinkable and um, a wilderness that sustains that. Yeah, I unfortunately feel like every day we uh, take us one step closer to the world of Wally, um, yeah. you know, and that that's you know that's scary not to me. I don't you know like you said, it's more about our our children, our grandchildren, our great grandchildren. Um, I don't know that. I mean, it very well could possibly. I mean, the sun could grow in size and envelop us tomorrow, sure. for all I know. But yeah. <laughs> you know, for the most part, I don't think I in my lifetime is going to see this huge, massive destruction of you know, the entire earth. But at the same time, like, as we start, you know, taking those steps closer and closer, like I worry about my future kids, you know, their yeah. future kids, like, I, again, you know, we need to make sure we're leaving. Um, you know, I, I, I like to try to live my mantra as, you know, leave it better than I found it. Yeah. You know, it, it, even if it's just something little that I can do, you know, if I'm walking on a trail in a national park and it's, you know, pick up a piece of litter, you know, that's, yeah. Hey, that's one less piece of litter uh, in the wilderness. Um, one of the things that I feel like we absolutely have to uh, hit on just because it's such a hot topic in the United mm -hmm. States is trophy hunting, right? Yeah. Um, I, I struggle with the term trophy hunting because it's when you say trophy hunting, it seems like such a black and white issue, right? Um, yeah. But there's, again, gray areas to, to all yeah. of it. Um, so I feel like most people would define trophy hunting as going uh, hunting to kill an animal solely so you can come back with a piece of that animal to display. Yeah. Um, and oftentimes it's associated with hunting in places like Africa, going to shoot a giraffe or um, a lion or something like that. Yeah. Um, what, what is, is there a debate over trophy hunting in these countries that are hosting uh, what we consider trophy hunting. And like, I mean, you've been there, you've talked with those people, yeah. like how did, how did they perceive um, develop people from developed nations coming to hunt sure. you know, these animals on their land? It, so it, it, again, uh, and this is such a great question. I think it's really important to, so I'm going to start off by just saying like, I'm not a hunter. Um, and so I'm come from my own, you know, I, I, I love the wilderness. I have no problem with hunting, uh, especially if it's well managed. And, um, you know, and, and I, I mean, I, I think it's uh, to me, ethically, it makes more sense if it's being eaten or utilized in some manner, obviously. Um, so, but I have, I've written 
some about trophy hunting. I, a few years ago, I got to actually go to a, a conference with, that was held by a hunting organization um, in Europe. And so it brought really hunters from around the world. Um, and it was fascinating as a journalist who had covered some of this stuff, but like to actually just spend like a few days with like hardcore hunters and hear their, what they, them talk about their experiences, why they love it, what connects them to it. And we're talking about not just hunters, like, you know, like, like a lot of people that I grew up around, you know, hunting white-tailed deer, um, pheasant, that kind of thing. We're talking about like trophy hunting um, and those kinds of things. Um, so I, from, from what I, I can say is that, you know, again, countries are going to be different uh, and the, and the, reactions within the countries are going to be different. And actually, conservationists are going to be different. Conservationists are split on this right now. This isn't like a thing where like all conservationists say trophy hunting is doing good work or all of it saying, you know, like it's it's evil and should be banned. No, I mean, there are some very prominent conservationists who are very much for trophy hunting under certain circumstances. Um, and then there are others that are dead set against it. So as a journalist, you know, your job is to really tell the story of those kinds of people, right, is to get into that, that gray area, hopefully. Um, and so I think that trophy hunting, from what I've seen, and from what I read, it's all about how it's done, and how it's managed, and whether or not, and this is the big, the big question, right, whether or not it's actually, money is actually going to local people, or land is being conserved that wouldn't otherwise be conserved, right, like a lot of the argument for trophy hunting, and it's a legit argument, is that Trophy hunters will pay a ridiculous amount of money, ridiculous amount of money to go and, sh and, and, and kill an animal uh, that, you know, whether it be a, a lion or an elephant or giraffe or whatnot. Um, and so if that money is actually going back into conservation, then you, you, you know, that's where these conservationists and local people and local governments say, hey, look, we're using this money for the conservation of the species or, or, you know, wild areas. The other thing that people don't always think about is that Trophy hunting, there's a lot of land in Africa that could otherwise be turned into other things that is currently being held by um, trophy hunting, basically companies or organizations, right? So this is land that, you know, um, you know, is, is difficult often to get to, is in countries that not a lot of tourists go to. So you can't really just make the argument that, well, if we just had some tourists show up, it would fix this. Well, tourists, for one thing, don't pay as much as trophy hunters, right? Um, so that's like the plus side of trophy hunting. The downside of trophy hunting is obviously there's the ethical argument, which, you know, we can or cannot dive into, um, but it can come with a lot of corruption. It can also come with a lot of, uh, there's been a lot of scandals where, you know, various parts of animals end up in East Asia, again, feeling the wildlife trade. And uh, it, it can come with a lot of mismanagement where that money is not going to conservation, where that money is disappearing, where local people are not getting any benefit and these animals are being killed and the money is going somewhere else. Um, and I, I do think that one of the conservation questions is too, you know, um, trophy hunting is often targeting uh, what, the, you know, the big five in Africa, uh, which is, you know, lion, elephant, uh, bison, uh, or buffalo, sorry, not bison. Um, African buffalo, uh, leopard, and um, rhino, right? Uh, those are sort of like the, 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 woo, that's, you know, what a lot of trophy hunters want. I mean, and they go after antelopes and other things, sometimes even small animals like monkeys, which I was surprised to hear. I don't know what shooting a monkey would really do for you, but, you know, um, so looking at it, trying to take yourself out of the sort of the ethical outrage, which I think, you know, for certain people that's that I understand that feeling and that argument. Um, but there is also the conservation argument of at what point are these animals populations going to go down so far that you just have to stop? Um, you know, at what point are elephants potentially or so few lions uh, giraffes are now endangered. I mean, all these animals are on the endangered species list. Let's let's be pretty frank about that. You know, elephants, lions, uh, uh, maybe not African buffalo. I have to look that up, but it might be vulnerable. Um, so, you know, at some point, the 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 trophy hunters are reaching this crisis, right? Of like, um, at some point, it's going to become almost untenable. And you've you've seen that in other places in the world. N you know, no one hunts tiger anymore. You can't legally hunt tiger anywhere. You could pay, you know, Russia a million dollars and they won't let you go hunt a tiger. And the reason is because there's so few of them, right? So at some point, we might hit a point where there's just so few lions that it's no longer, you know, within, within a bit of able, there's no country willing to do it to sanction it. 
but of course we've already seen that like there's you know we had that uh, they they shot the black rhino a few years ago and that was a huge you know question but that's a critically endangered animal um and and there was a lot of debate about that and i think the debate was in in many ways good and there's a lot of questions about you know if, if it's an older male blah 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 you know there's there's but it often gets very emotional and it often gets very much outrage on both sides and both sides aren't listening to each other and 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 you know it's a really hard topic to debate but i i do think that there i personally after spending a lot of years covering it see that there is a gray area that there is context that trophy hunting i've talked to conservationists who think it's really been helpful in certain areas under certain conditions um and i've talked to others who who disagree and it's it's really gets to a point where it's hard to know um you know who's right who's wrong but i do think that you know when i was talking to trophy hunters and stuff there is the sense of one of the reasons i think hunters and trophy hunters are so kind of can be so up back against the wall is because they feel like there is an end in in sight right and they don't want to lose their the sport that they love um but because of the way these animals are vanishing in, in a place like sub-saharan africa i i you know there is kind of this potential end in sight unless there is better management and all of a sudden more land and, and, and we allow these animals to flourish in a way that trophy hunting becomes, again, as you're back to your word, back to, you know, the word of the more sustainable, right? More, more potentially sustainable. Um, so I don't know if that helps kind of uncover a little bit, but I, I, you know, countries certainly see revenue in it different governments will say they're going to open up trophy hunting again and then you know, another government will close it down for various reasons but there is a debate and there's still a debate going on in the conservationists and there's still you know um and then there's obviously the the fight between the trophy the hunters and the the animal activists which is a totally different kind of thing but within the science world there's still debate yeah and i i like that you started this off by saying you're not a hunter but you you can see benefits to hunting sure. in certain oh, yeah. aspects um you know and as anyone who's listened to this podcast uh any episode before all you all know that i'm a hunter um you know I, i'm an avid hunter uh, i'm outspoken on the benefits of hunting um but as you said you know there's good and bad <laughs> and yeah. you know and especially when it comes to this this trophy hunting um you know, and I really feel like uh, each individual hunter needs to take stock in their own personal beliefs and their morals and their ethics. Um, and taking out the financial aspect of how much I would have to pay, um, mm -hmm. you know, because the amount is, you know, I've seen at times double what I make in a year. So yeah, <laughs> it's, it's not even, out. it's not even possible for me, but um, let's just say that, you know, um, Safari Club International does a, a, a raffle and I win, you know, on a $5 ticket, uh, a mm -hmm. hunt to in Africa for one of the big five. Um, I would not go that it, it, that style of hunting, not even style, that version of hunting does yeah. not appeal to me. Um, mm -hmm. That's just not something that I feel like I want to do. Yeah. But at the same time, as you said, if it's done correctly, if the money's going to the right places, it's being done in a sustainable way, um, yeah. then I have no problem with it. Yeah. Um, you know, I, you know, we always see in the headlines here whenever you know something bad happens, yes. you know, with trophy hunting. Um, Cecil the lion is like yeah. the the big red uh herring you know i mean it, it's and whenever you like look into the details like every step that was taken to kill that line was wrong completely yeah. wrong yeah it was um, totally messed up hunt. yeah not nothing about that in my mind is hunting right um yeah, they yeah. they poached that line um so you know I feel like we see most of the bad stuff. We don't see some of the good stuff that can happen, but at the same time, that, that's because there are bad things happening. Yeah. Right. Um, and, you know, you mentioned hunters feeling like they have their backs against the wall. Um, you know, I feel like it's because we only, typically we're only hearing about the bad stuff. Mm -hmm. um, hunters are, are oftentimes, you know, uh, attacked. Um, and, you know, just like anyone else with, the, with the way uh, the internet works, yeah. um, it's it can get pretty vicious. So yeah. um, you know, it, it you know it, it's it, it's tough. It, it, it's a tough position to put yourself in. Um, and like I say, it's just it it's not for me. Um, 
and and I think I I do think that it's important that that I think part of what's missing is the 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 knowledge that hunting has played a large role in, in conservation around the world for for good right historically speaking and stuff and still in some you know still in many places is, is important right ducks unlimited you know the mm -hmm. wetlands I mean all a lot of our land in, in the U.S. that was spared and saved you know and and same with Europe like a lot of Europe you know it was like this is a game area where so. I think that that is is part of what people are missing, and obviously, you know, uh, there's changing views on, uh, you know, wildlife and and animal, you know, intelligence and all these kinds of things too, which is which is feeling some of this. And then there's just the the you know the the animal rights community and hunters are just you know, at odds and never the twain shall meet. And um, you know, so I it's 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 interesting as a journalist to be sort of able to kind of run both sides a little bit or see both sides and you know even as someone again who's not a, not a personally a hunter but I respect especially when people go out and hunt you know obviously like I said like legally well managed and for food it like I'm like yeah that makes it's a lot better than raising a cow in 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 Brazil on deforested land you know um yeah and let me tell you it um it, it tastes better too oh yeah oh I, I yeah and I and I've and I've had you know I've had food that's been hunted many times um so, and, and you also see it from, you know, indigenous groups are fighting around the world in places to, to have, uh, you know, to be able to hunt in certain national parks where they've been not allowed, right? Um, so there's there's a lot of issues, um, I think, with this that we need to, I, obviously, you know, we're, we're not going to fix the civility of the internet or anything, but I do wish both sides would also try and, you know, understand a little bit where the other side is coming from and understand that, you know, there are that it's more gray than black and white mm -hmm. um and that you know we can we can disagree but we can you don't have to you know be jerks about it i mean obviously that's that's <laughs> wishing for a different world but yeah um all right so let's one of the articles uh that you wrote that i read um i found very interesting um, but I did have, you know, uh, a little bit of questions about it. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, it's easy. It, it, the article in the article, you, you even state this, that it's easy to get public support to conserve a fluffy or a well-known species tigers, right? Like who, like if, if I send out emails to people saying, Hey, you know, this, these tigers are endangered and, you know, $5, from you goes towards helping them. I mean, the money's going to flow in. Yeah. Um, but, you know, if I send a, a picture of a salamander that's, uh, you know, that's endangered, um, people are just going to, they're probably not even going to open the email, yeah. let alone, um, you know, donate any money. Um, and you mentioned in that article about these underrepresented species uh, that we should give them a backstory. Right. Sure. Uh, to let people know that, you know, why it's important to conserve these species. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, so. So I, as, as we kind of talked about in the beginning, I'm, I'm very interested in species that are sort of hidden and, and not as noticed and, and what some might describe as as ugly or you. But I, I love weird species. I love. So I, I've spent a kind of a career going and finding strange mammals and you know reptiles and lizards and things to, to sort of cover because I just find it really interesting and a lot of them are on literally the brink of extinction and as you say like something like tigers gets hundreds of millions of dollars a year and uh, these other endangered species get next to nothing and are really just surviving if they are surviving you know um, on, on luck and on borrowed time. Um, and so the article is really trying to talk to some conservationists who work with those types of species and some organizations and say well how do we change this? You know, how do we get, how do you do it? How do you get money for these species? How do you pick these species? And then how do you like, yeah, how do you promote species? Because I feel like conservationists are, some of these groups have done a pretty good job or starting to do a good job of, of promoting weirder species. Um, and so a, a backstory uh, or, or, or uh, you know, is, is, an is sort of a way of like, basically you need to tell that species story and find the, the bits about the species that are weird, right? Like, um, trying to think of a good, well, for one of my favorite species is Selenodon. And that's a species that a small rat-like mammal, looks like a large rat, but it's not a rat, it's its own complete thing, uh, evolutionary. And it was around during the dinosaurs, um, like basically unchanged, it's kind of crazy. 
uh, and it just happens to live in, in um, the Dominican Republic and Haiti, uh, well, maybe Haiti, but the Dominican Republic and Cuba as well. Um, and, you know, so how do you, how do you get people interested in that species? Well, you, you talk about the fact that it was around when the dinosaurs were around and it's still here. Um, how do you get people interested in, you know, a weird desert rodent from Mongolia? Well, you, you know, you show pictures of that, make it, you know, that, that show off just how, I mean, if you want to get into it, how adorable cute it is, right? Like, um, you try, or, or, uh, I think there was like this, this one turtle that like, I can't, I'm, I might be remembering this wrong, that like cooped out of its mouth or something like during the winter, I don't know, there's something disgusting, right? You lead with that, you lead with something to get, you know, we're all in this attention economy where it's so hard to get people to notice these things. So it was really just, just an article trying to find ways or trying to talk to conservationists who work with these animals and, and just talking about how hard it is to get funding for species that have been, you know, ignored and, you know, in, in the US, we have the Endangered Species Act, which does cover a lot of species that are quite, you know, uh, non-charismatic, if you want to use that terminology. I find them charismatic often, but most people want, you know, um, and, you know, but most countries don't, you know, and, and we can, you could debate like whether or not that law is working and, and, and the problems with it. And, you know, these species still aren't getting the kind of help that say, you know, some other species in America would be getting. But you know, we have a law that sort of supposedly covers a lot of these these things and most but most countries don't have anything like that right like these species are really getting no government funding often no conservation group funding and they're sort of you know so the idea of that article was trying to find ways to get more interest in those species um yeah yeah so i and i think that's a great thing right i mean there yeah. are um certain species and some of them are quite honestly can almost be like the the canary in the coal mine you know as an indication yeah. to other problems that are eventually going to affect the more likable species that are out there sure. um so i think it's a good thing uh to get people's attention about these species um you know obviously if, if any species is endangered or threatened um, we need we should be trying to do something to help yeah. them out um my question is you know where's the line like yeah. where do you know you mentioned you know having, you know, showing a picture of how adorable a certain animal is. And yeah. especially in the United States, we have, I personally feel like we have such a problem with anthropomorphizing animals and um, bestowing these, you know, human characteristics on them that mm -hmm. just, they just don't exist. Um, mm -hmm. And and then that, the, that effect then has issues with um, some conservation techniques that might be needed. Sure. Um, you know, so I mean, like, where, where do you draw the line for that? Like, how do we decide, how do we decide, like, okay, this is good, this is going to generate buzz, but it's not yeah. going to have a, a, a bad effect on it? Yeah, I, I think it's, I mean, honestly, it's, that's such a, that's a really rich and interesting question. And it's a really difficult one to answer. Um, you know, as a journalist, one of the nice things about being a journalist, and probably one of the reasons why journalists are disliked <laughs> sometimes, is that like, you can wade into these thorny issues and then like not have to have an opinion, right? Like <laughs> you present the both sides of the argument and then you or yourself be like, I don't know what the answer is. And like, that's kind of honestly my answer here is like, I don't know. I mean, I feel like, um, you know, there, I, I understand what you're saying. And I do think that, yes, there is a line and like, it is important for people to understand the difference between uh, the human species and other and, and other species and the similarities too. you know, as we're finding a lot of species are more intelligent than we expected. They have complex, emotional, rich behavioral lives. Um, so we also shouldn't be like just downcasting, you know, older dumb brute animals. No, no, that's not true either. But yes, there are there are differences. And sometimes conservation requires uh, management of certain animals for, for this is this is kind of a good example, I think, is like you have these islands in the world where they've been in, they've been infested with rats, right? Or cats. Cats. Let's do cats because cats is such cats more. Cats are a great you know, one. Yes, cats are a great ones. So you have places like Hawaii where there's just tons of feral cats, and then you have these birds, which are the last living you know species of this bird like in the planet, right? And there's a huge debate about what do you do? You know, do you like there are a lot of conservationists would say, well, you go and you take out those cats. And it's not pretty. I've heard conservationists talk about what happens when they kill a cat. Uh, it's not pretty um, at all. But the if your if your overarching goal is conservation, right? You sometimes have to do those really messy things because humans have messed it up, 
you know, the other option is to let the species go extinct. Uh, so, so those are, I mean, and, and, and cats like are horrend, like I, they're wonderful pets. Great. Yeah. Have all the cats you want, but like you let them outside, they're going to murder the hell out of birds and rodents. Right. Um, and you let them outside on an island where there's only so many, they're going to decimate. Right. And we've already lost number of species to cats. So I think that's the, the, that's part of the, I guess that's an analog to what you're saying is like, there is a line. Um, if your goal is sort of that every animal has sort of undeniable rights that needs to be respected and, and should never be killed by a human, then you have to let those birds be killed by that cat, right? And then those birds go extinct, like forever are gone, right? And cats will overrun that island and they will kill more and more species. And, you know, you'll have a, a, a you'll lose a lot of diversity. And so it, it's, it's, it's put humans in such a, we've put ourselves in such an awful position, you know, but I think one of the things, and I, I have, I have respect for animal rights activists and I've written about animal rights before. Um, but one of the things that I kind of disagree with a lot of animal rights activists is they're always concerned about the, the cute cat, uh, that cat's going to kill hundreds of birds, right? So if you don't kill the cat, which we put there, it's our fault. It's going to kill hundreds of birds, thousands, maybe more. And often for just for fun. Um, just because that's what it does. It's a cat. It's a, it's a murder machine. And I, and I have like, I love cats. So it's not a, it's not a dismissal on like, again, like we're kind of getting the anthropological, like, right, like, but that's what cats do. Um, and so I do think, I think you're exactly right that there is a line. And I think we, you know, I, I'm not advocating like trying to turn these animals into uh, a human version of themselves. I, I, I'm more advocating, I think, finding the weird and wonderful things about them and shining a light on that. And yeah, sometimes that involves maybe a couple cute pictures or a video where that just shows how adorable they are because people love that shit. Excuse my language. Um, but I do think that in, more important probably is finding the weird, unusual, fun, strange, funny, you know, humans react to stories, we react to emotions. And really, you know, and I didn't, I mean, to be honest, I didn't think about that when I was writing it, but like, I didn't think about, well, what if we over these things and it becomes an issue? I didn't think about it at all. Um, and now that, you know, if I did a follow-up, I'd love to ask the, the researchers some of that, but, you know, it, it's, it, it, there is a line. Um, I don't honestly know where that always is. And, and part of that story is like, how do we, what do we have to do kind of desperately to try and save some of these species? You know, and maybe there's a place for making a turtle slightly cute in order to do that. I don't know. But I know people who hunt turtles, you know, in Southeast Asia that would be annoyed by that. <laughs> Granted, they're probably doing it illegally, but. Yeah, no, I, I think that's well said, um, you know, and, you know, I feel like two big points that, that you mentioned there. One is that um, humans screwed it up, right? Oh, yeah. um, so, you know, sometimes you have to do things that you don't necessarily want to do to yeah. fix the problem that you you yourself created, you know, as, as the human race. Um, and then the other point I think that, that is great is that that you made is that when you're talking about specifically cats, like a feral cat that lives outside, does its thing, kills all these birds, that is not the same kind of cat that you have sitting on your lap in your house. Sure. It, yeah. You know, those are, those are it, it found a way to survive in the wild, um, which is what makes it feral. Um, so it's, again, trying to figure out where that line is of where do you draw it for, you know, uh, this cat that, you know, is sitting on my lap as I'm reading this article or listening to this podcast. And that cat that's outside that's, you know, as you said, often, yes, killing for food, but then also just killing for fun, because <laughs> we know that that's what cats do. Um, Jeremy, this has been great. And I want to make sure that we have uh, some time for you uh, to talk about your new book, uh, which is uh, Baggage, Confessions of a Globetrotting Hypochondriac. Um, I'm not a, I wouldn't say I'm an avid reader, but I do like to read. I, I tried to force myself uh, to take time to, to read books throughout the year. Um, tell me about this book. I, I, seeing, the, <laughs> seeing this title um, <laughs> from, yeah. a, from a conservationist writer is not um, what I would have expected. Oh, uh, I, yeah. have, I haven't read the book, um, but I wouldn't have expected to see this title and be like, oh yeah, he writes about conservation. Yeah. <laughs> Tell everyone what this book's about. Yeah. So the book is actually, it's so, you know, I've, I've spent uh, over a decade writing conservation environmental journalism and the book is something different, but related. Uh, it's the stories of my trips that I've done 
uh, most of them for environmental journalism. Some of the early ones, it was more as a tourist and that the story is somewhat about my awakening uh, into environmental journalism. Uh, but it's also a story about mental illness. Like I have uh, OCD, which I was diagnosed with in my 20s. I also have anxiety and depression and things which I was diagnosed when I was a child. Um, and so it's a story of, of what it's like to travel to places like Indonesia, Botswana, you know, cool uh, places, uh, Ecuador, places like that with, with anxieties, right? With, with sort of being basically a bad traveler and then still doing it. Um, and so it's, it's meant to be a funny book you know, it's meant to explore what that's like. It's it's humorous. Uh, it does get into the nitty gritty, you know, which is something I've really struggled with, but finally decided I need to just kind of do it. It does get into the nitty gritty of, of what it's like, at least on a personal side for me, of what's living with mental illness. And one of the goals was to, you know, write a book that was approachable, that would be enjoyable, that's also about mental illness. So, you know, if you've struggled with mental illness, if someone listening to this has, or if you have a loved one who has, this is a book that might kind of help relate or understand what it's like because I'm a like if you met me you'd probably never you'd never know right because I can I can I can you as a, someone with mental illness you you get very good at just being normal and uh not showing that side except for like your most closest loved ones so you know I wanted to write about that but I also it was interesting because you know one of the things you do as a conservation environmental journalist is I just felt like I was reaching the same audience over and over again the same uh, groups of people that were interested in this and stuff. And I thought, well, is there a way that I could tell a different story, but still, you know, tweak in my own environmental uh, experiences, uh, my experiences with nature, my experiences meeting some of the rarest animals on the earth in person, uh, not knowing if my child will ever be able to see them, you know, like uh, those kind of moments. Um, and so the book is full uh, of, you know, environmental, uh, tidbits here and there, you know, I talk about deforestation, I talk about mass extinction, I talk about the Selenodon, which I mentioned earlier, the Sumatran rhino, a number of my favorite species make appearances because I'm literally going on these trips to try and find these animals. And then I talk about, you know, why, why, why they're vanishing. And so there is an environmental conservation theme throughout. There's a theme of nature, you know, why I love nature and what it does for us, um, along with funny stories about travel and, and mental illness and, and how I've kind of learned to still be able to do these trips and this journalism whilst while managing my own <laughs> issues. Um, so that's really what it's about. It's, it's, it's sort of a mix of different themes. Uh, people's reactions have been really great. So that's been really nice. Uh, so if you're, you know, if, if someone is interested in these issues uh, and you don't really know where to start, it might be kind of an interesting way to like dive into some of these environmental issues. Uh, otherwise I would suggest, you know, just finding some good articles online and, and start reading up because there's, there's, you know, there's so much going on in the U.S., but um, increasingly the world is smaller. Increasingly, our environmental issues are less and less. I mean, they're all local, but they're also increasingly global. So I think it's it's always good to try and, and understand, like, what's going on in Brazil? Why are they burning the forest? You know, why is this species, you know, what's going on with the wildlife trade? What's the debate around these things? I think it's it's good as people to, to have some of that knowledge um, and, to, and to let it sort of think about, well, who do, you know, how do we uh, view our own nation and, and what we've done, you know, and, and where should we go in conservation here? Um, so. Yeah. Uh, so first I want to say um, one, uh, I, I, I feel like I'm a pretty good traveler. Um, I don't typically don't have any issues, but thinking about like traveling to these sort of like developing nations and, and some of the places that you're going, like that, that would even give me a little bit of anxiety. Yeah. So I, the fact that, that you've, had your struggles and you're still, you know, putting yourself in those situations. I, that is incredibly admirable in my mind. And then two, um, I want to say that I feel like you are uh, incredibly, incredibly brave to just put your <laughs> struggles out to the world, yeah. you know? Um, so, you know, I commend you on that because, um, uh, you know, you. starting this podcast, um, as with nothing to lose and putting myself out there was a little like, oh, wow. you know, oh, yeah. and, and I had like, I have feel like I have, I personally have no baggage, um, yeah. you know, and for you to put yourself out in such a vulnerable way like that, like that's, I mean, that that's inspiring to me. So, you know, oh, I, I commend you for that. That's, it, I, I, that that's awesome. Believe um, me, it was, it was definitely not an easy decision. And there was a yeah. lot of conversations with, you know, my wife and my family. And 
but I, I, you know, I think, I think the end goal was, well, if it can help some other people who deal similarly or loves people who have similar issues, great. And then I didn't, you know, I didn't want to write a book that was a downer. I wanted to write something that would be a fun read for anybody. So um, that, that was part of the goal too, was to, that's why I sort of stick mostly with travel stories. It's not like, you don't have to sit around with Jeremy at home when he's depressed, <laughs> you know, you don't want to do that. <laughs> um, so, yeah, but I, I appreciate that. Thank you. It is, it is always hard you know, to put yourself out there, but it's, it's, I think, you know, the more we're honest about these issues and the more we can talk about them, uh, you know, the better it can be for some people that struggle. Um, and, and, and better for people that don't struggle, but yeah. have someone in their life that does and how yeah. to approach them and how to yeah. help them through tough times. And, and, you know, for lack of a better way of saying it, deal with, you know, that person struggles themselves. For sure. And I think, you know, this last year for, all of us in the world, you know, it's tested us all in different ways. And I think, you know, my, myself, you know, I've found out new things about myself and my illnesses. And, you know, so I think it, you know, it's, it's a good time to be talking about this even around, you know, uh, to, to talk about, you know, how different people struggle and, and, and how we deal with it and what we can do to make it better for all of us. Absolutely. Hey, Jeremy, how can people follow your work? How can people learn more about you? What you're writing about? Uh, I'm, I'm sure you're not traveling as much right now. No, um, I had but, to, I but, to cancel a trip to Indonesia last year. I was so bummed. But hopefully um, that can start soon. So yeah. you know, when, when, you know, how can people learn more yeah. about your work and, and the things you're writing about? So I have a website, jeremyhance.com, H-A-N-C-E, and that has, you know, all the information about the book. And then I, I tend to, you know, try and regularly any podcasts I'm doing or any writing I'm doing articles. I've been doing a little less this year just because of COVID. Um, and then I'm also on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram again, just under my name. Um, and you can find, and I try to, you know, I also try to share other people's really interesting stories. So if you're just interested in uh, conservation in general, you know, feel free to follow me and see what I've been sharing lately or whatever. Um, so yeah, that's where you can find me and find more information about what I'm doing. Um, we're going to put, uh, the links for everyone listening. We're going to put all those links, uh, to all his social media and his website in the show notes. Um, so you can see that. And then I'll be tagging Jeremy and all the social media posts about this too. So, um, you know, in case you're driving and can't click on that link right now, uh, just find one of those social media, uh, posts about this podcast and, uh, you'll be able to find him on your favorite social media outlet, whichever one that may be. So Jeremy, thank you for, uh, joining me. This has been a great conversation and, um, Maybe next time we'll talk a little bit more closer to home about some uh, <laughs> conservation issues. <laughs> That'd be fun. I'd love to do that. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me, Jason. It's been really great. And I'm happy that I could help out and uh, chat about all the different things going on around the world. Yeah. It's been great. Thank you. Yeah. You're welcome. All right. That will do it for today. And I want to thank Jeremy for coming on. I want to thank you for listening. You know, this idea of trying to conserve animals that are far from home for those of us in, in North America, I think sometimes it can be a little tough to really grasp what is actually going to help those animals and which animals actually need help. Uh, it's easy for us to know, you know, what animals need help whenever we're listening to the people that are right around us. Um, but when it's coming from a different country and there's just so many unknowns, you know, it can be a little bit tough to sort of sift through and understand um, all the intricacies and the differences in culture and things like that. Um, I, I really hope that, you know, if by listening to Jeremy, you've gotten interested in some of his work. I have uh, gone back and read a whole lot of his articles that uh, came out even you know a couple years ago so you know he has a interesting and unique perspective um, he's a great writer and I hope this in this piques a little interest in his work um, I also want to commend him uh, in his ability to be able to speak so personally um, about his uh, battles with mental illness and uh, his OCD, uh, Steve, and, you know, his depression, Malachi, <laughs> as he's, um, you know, named them to help him be able to cope with them. 
Um, he, as he said, you know, he, he wrote this new memoir, this new book, uh, you know, Baggage Confessions of a Globetrotting Hypochondriac. And, um, you know, if, if it piques your interest, I hope you pick up that book. Um, you know, a little bit different than, than conservation specific, but, you know, there's, there's some issues in there that he talks about that, um, you know, and, and the idea of travel and going to these places. And I, I think, again, I commend him for putting that something so personal out there for everyone um, to sort of read about and, and judge. And, uh, you know, if it's if you deal with any type of mental illness, um, uh, you know, it might be it might be a good idea for you to pick up this book so that you can sort of see how he has dealt with it. Um, and how he is working to overcome it um, and have a fulfilling life that may help you uh, work through your you know any issues that you personally may be having. I want to leave you with one last thought and that is to continue researching, continue reading, continue learning about conservation issues, whether they are local, or national or international uh, by learning more that's really how you can become better at being your own personal conservationists and that's what I'm doing here so keep reading keep researching keep being interested in the topics that interest you and you know you know what I'm gonna say I say it every week until next time stay wild <laughs>